All right. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? All right. Hey, get your Bible out. Let's do what we do. Let's get into God's Word. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one at your seat. Open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. In the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. We're launching into a series on the life of King David. Now, we're not going to be able to get through every episode in the life of King David. Hopefully, these weekend messages will whet your appetite to read more on your own. But I do think that we can provide somewhat of an overview for you so you get a better handle on who this man is. You may be going, I don't know really anything about King David. Well, hopefully, we'll give a good introduction to you in this series. Really, the importance of King David cannot be overstated. Uh, he was the most prominent, I would say the greatest king in Israel's history. He was the one that unified the nation. He was the one that set Jerusalem as the capital city. Uh, there's more written about David than any other Old Testament figure. 66 chapters in the Bible are dedicated to David's life. And, and a lot of the iconic stories, you know, David and Goliath, David and his mighty men, all this comes out of the, this life of this man. Uh, so David is a prominent figure. You see him uh, a great warrior, all right, and conquer. You see him as a great writer of the Psalms. Most of the Psalms that we have in the Bible are written by King David. You also see him as a great worshiper. He is the one that brings the ark into Jerusalem and that establishes worship in the city and has a vision for a temple to worship God. So all this is, is a part of King David's life, all these victories, right? But there are also a lot of failures in David's life. And the Bible doesn't skirt over the fact that there were many places and times that David miserably failed. And, um, and so the Bible's honest with the good and the bad. Now, here's what I want you to, to, to remember. I'm going to try to remind you of this as we go through the series. When we look at the life of David and we study these events in David's life, the real focus should not be how great David is. David's so awesome. David's so brave. David's so strong. He's so athletic. He's got it all together. No, no, no. The real emphasis should be how great God is. And that God is working through David to redeem, to save, to provide. That it is a work of God through a very flawed person. And by the way, that should be good news for us, right? Because if God can work through a flawed person like David, then God can work through a flawed people like you and like me. Somebody say amen to that. All right, so, so we're going to be reminded this is God's work, not necessarily how great David is. All right, now today we're starting off with the very first time we see David in the pages of Scripture. This is the very first place where we see him. And I want you to think of two words as we read through this passage together. Here are the two words, God sees, God sees. That's what you're going to see throughout this chapter, that God sees you. And we're going to, we're going to look at how God sees you uh, in this chapter together, okay? So uh, in fact, if you're taking notes, I'll just go ahead and write this first thought down, uh, that God sees your pain, God sees your pain. We're going to look at this, 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. If you're with me, say amen. amen. All right, this is the word of God. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul, 
since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Now stop right there. As the curtain opens up on this story, you see Samuel, the great prophet, and he's weeping. He's mourning. He's grieving. You say, well, why is, why is Samuel grieving? Samuel's a great prophet, right? He's the, he's the mighty man of God. He's the, he's the judge of Israel. I mean, he's, he's the most godly person they've got. And here he is weeping. Why? Well, he's weeping over Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. You see, see the Israel as a nation wanted a king. They, they, God was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be your leader. I'm going to lead you like a shepherd leads his sheep. I'm going to be your leader. And they're like, we, we, don't want, we don't want God as our leader. We want a king. I mean, that nation's got a king, and that nation's got a king, and that nation's got a king, and we want a king like them. And so multiple times through Samuel, God warned them, hey, you, you get a man as a king, that's always going to lead you into trouble. Uh, he's going he's gonna to take, take your taxes. He's going to take your property. He's going to take your sons and put them uh, in the army. He's going to do all these things. No, you don't want a king. And, and they said, no, we want a king. Give us a king. And finally God said, all right, you want a king? You can have it. And so the first king that they received was King Saul. And at first, man, he looked so great. I mean, he was tall. He was handsome. You know, he was with it. He had the right pedigree. Everything looked amazing. But almost from the jump, Saul was a huge mistake. I mean, he became arrogant. He became indifferent. He made bad choices. Over and over and over, he, was, he, he, he made mistake after mistake. In fact, in 1 Samuel 26, he finally admits this himself. He said, I have acted like a fool. And that is so true. From his whole life, he just acted like a fool. And finally, his ultimate problem was that he would not obey God. When God would give him a directive, he would not do it. Now, he would make excuses and he would give reasons why he didn't obey, but he refused to obey God. And because of that, God rejected him as king. And so Samuel's grieving over this. I think Samuel feels somewhat responsible, right? You know, like, well, I anointed him and, and I tried to coach him up, Lord, and I tried to confront him and I tried to make this thing work, but it just wasn't working. And so God has said, I've rejected Saul and here is Samuel grieving. I guess you could say Saul was rejected and Samuel was dejected, right? And so here he is mourning over the pain of all of that. And then the Lord asks Saul a question. Look at it. Look at verse one. How long are you going to mourn over Saul? Hey, Samuel, how long are you going to replay this over and over and over? How long are you going to keep thinking about Saul and what you could have done to maybe make this thing work? How, how long are you going to allow uh, the, this pain to hold you back? How long are you going to replay these issues over and over and over in your mind? How long? You know, that's a really important question for us because it's easy for us to have pain in our past and replay it over and over and over in our mind. How long are you going to live in the pain of that past? It may be a pain that you've caused. I can't believe I did that. I hurt so many people. I was such a, a bad influence here. I, I can't believe I did that one thing. And, and, and you just, it, it has identified who you are. 
Or maybe it's the pain that somebody has done to you. You can't believe that this happened to you as a kid or this happened to you as a young adult or, this, or, or somebody rejected you or somebody hurt you or they did that to your children and, the, and this pain is like a big boulder you're carrying around all the time. And it has become your identity and it's, it's all that you think about and it's all you replay in your mind. And God is saying, how long are you going to allow this to do this to you? How long are you going to allow the pain of your past to identify you in your present and hold you back from your future? How long? And so God tells Samuel, uh, look at it. He said, fill your horn with oil and go. He had a horn, a container. He said, fill it with anointing oil and go. Now, Samuel knew what this meant. That meant that he was going to anoint a new king, right? He knew what this meant. And I think what God was saying to Samuel is this. Samuel, we're turning the page. Samuel, we're moving forward. Samuel, we're not going to remain where we are now. Now, let me just really be clear. There, there, there is a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. There's a time to acknowledge hurt and the pain that we've experienced in life. That is true. There's a season and a time to grieve it through. But there is also a time to move forward. There's a time to leave the past behind you and to move forward. And here he was saying, Samuel, you know, you've mourned a long time. Now it's time to move forward. I have somebody else uh, to anoint. You know, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes moving forward is hard. Look at verse, look at verse two. And Samuel asked, well, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and he'll kill me. And the Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate to you. He's like, well, I, I can't move forward, you know, because if I do that, then Saul's going to find out. Saul's going to kill me. And isn't it interesting that anytime God's wanting to move you forward in life, there's always some excuse, right? Well, I can't, you know, I can't move forward because of this. I can't move forward because of that. God, I can never really leave this thing that I'm dealing with. I can't move forward. I just can't. And God said, yeah, you can. Yes, you can. You can move forward. You know, I'm I reminded of, uh, I was just recently doing a Bible study in the book of John with some guys, and uh, we were in John 5, and there's a story here of a man that's crippled, and he's been crippled for 38 years. That's a long time. And he, he's set by a pool of Bethesda for 38 years, hoping to be healed, hoping that one day his day will come. And Jesus comes up to him. There's a whole bunch of people there. Jesus only goes up to him, and he asks him this very strange question. He said, do you want to be well? And that's kind of a duh question, right? Well, of course I want to be well, you know? I'm crippled, aren't I? But, but Jesus knew what you and I now know, that sometimes you can be in a bad place, you can have pain in your past, and that pain becomes your partner. It becomes that thing that you hold on to, that rejection, that pain, that incident, that thing becomes so much a part of you that it's hard to leave it and to move forward. That's why I asked, do you want to be well? Let me ask you, if God was ready to heal you from that pain of your past and move you forward, would you be willing to let him do it? Would you be willing to move forward with God and allow him to do that in your life? Samuel was making mistakes. I don't know that I can. And 
And Jesus said, I mean, uh, God told Samuel, yeah, you can. I have, I see your hurt. I see your pain. And I also see a path forward. And one of the things that we learn right off the bat from the first three verses of this story is that God sees your pain, but he also sees a way forward if you're willing to take it. So God sees your pain. First thing we learn about what God sees. Second thing we learn, jot this down, is that God sees your heart. God sees your heart. Look at verse four, four through seven. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. Humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. So he goes to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a tiny little town, a little insignificant town. And he goes to a family named Jesse. Jesse is the father, all right? And they are of the larger tribe of Judah. Now, this is really important because in Genesis, back in Genesis 49, Jacob, the patriarch, makes a prediction that a king will rise out of Judah. He said, uh, quote, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So if you're going to look for a king, you're going to look in the tribe of Judah. So he goes to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, who's of the tribe of Judah, because God is directing there, because there he's going to choose the next future king. And as he goes there, uh, he sees Eliab. Now, Eliab was the firstborn of Jesse's sons, all right? Jesse lines them up, and he sees Eliab, the firstborn. And he must have been a pretty impressive guy, all right? He must have been pretty, pretty chiseled. He probably had a pretty good physique. He probably pretty tall, looked like a leader, tan, you know, just really sharp, had lots of hair. Bald guys appreciate that. And, and so, you know, I mean, he just looks good, right? He looks apart. And, and Sam's like, whoa, man, surely the Lord's anointed is here, right? This got to be the guy, right? And God says, no, no, he's not the one. He's not the guy. And then you need to underline, verse seven needs to be underlined, start highlighted and circled in your Bible, okay? Humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Is that true? I mean, you think about that first part, humans see what is visible. Man, we just fixate on the outward appearance. Now, you gotta, gotta understand, this was written about 3,000 years ago, all right? And we're still fixated on our appearance. You know, just recently, the Today Show teamed up with AOL to do a survey, and they were talking about how we deal with our outward appearance. And one of the things that stood out to me, check this out, 62%, just think of the number 62, 62% of those who are like um, millennials and Gen Z, that kind of a larger group there, 62% said that they're worried about being judged by their appearance. Uh, on contrast to that, only, uh, let me get this right, 35% of baby boomers were worried about being judged by their appearance. I guess that means that uh, the older you get, the less you care, right? 
This is why your dad is like mowing the grass in his dress socks, you know, and that kind of thing. I mean, we just don't care. You know, dad, you can't wear that grocery store. I don't care. You know, I just go, right? Because the older you get, you don't care. You know, that, I, we have statistical proof now of that. Uh, let, let's talk about how often you spend looking in the mirror. Uh, women spend, on the average, 6.4 hours a week looking in the mirror, getting ready. Men, on the other hand, spend uh, 4.6 hours a week uh, looking in the mirror. And, of course, you can kind of tell the difference, right? Uh, guys aren't that great to look at. However, 52% of men, even though they spend less time in the mirror, are concerned about how they appear and how people perceive their appearance. So it's not like guys don't care. We just don't have that much to work with. <laughs> I think that's probably uh, the problem. Um, but... I thought this was interesting. There's one body part that everybody's concerned about, men and women alike, that they're concerned about how people judge them on. One body part. Can you guess what it is? Right here. Right here. Right there in the middle. 52% of men are worried about their stomach. 52%. 69% of women worried about their stomach. So everybody just right now, collectively, let's suck in together. All right? Just suck in. Now we're just fixated on our appearance, Right? Think about all the time and money that goes into working on the outside, right? All of our working out and our cosmetics and our hair and our clothes and all the things that we do to try to present ourselves in the best possible way on the outside. We spend so much time, so much money, so much energy. But what this verse tells us is this. God doesn't really care what you look like on the outside. God cares what you look like on the what? On the inside. God looks on the inside. How much time and energy and money do you spend working on the inside? Working on your character, working on your spiritual health, working on who you really are on the inside. You see, God sees you who you really are. You know, when you get on social media, you can put filters on stuff. You can edit out stuff. You know, the latest phones, they don't even talk to you about how the phone works, right? They're not talking about, well, the reception's really good, you know, or, or your phone is going to work really good. No, no. They're talking about how cool the pictures are and how you can edit this out and you can edit that out and you can put these filters on. You can really look super good. You know, we're so fixated on that, but God sees right through all that and he sees who you really are, the unfiltered you, the unchanged you, the raw you, the real you, even right now. He sees your heart. He sees your resentment or your bitterness. He sees your eagerness. He sees your repentance or your lack of repentance. God sees all of it. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 12, that nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That God sees who you really are. And that God wants to not only see your heart, but he wants to change your heart. He wants to clean your heart to make you right with him. So already we've learned that God sees our pain. God sees our heart. Here's another thing that God sees. Jot this down. God sees where you are. God sees where you are. Look at verse eight. And Jesse called Abinadab, that's the second born, and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema. This is the third oldest. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. 
Verse 10, after Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. And Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. And he had beautiful eyes and healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. You know, the NFL season ends with the Super Bowl. Y'all, most of y'all probably watched the Super Bowl last week, all right? Uh, and uh, so that, that's, the, that's the climax of the, of the NFL season. But the really season begins with a draft. And uh, at the draft, of course, all these NFL teams now are drafting the, the best players they possibly can onto their team so that they have a, a better team. Uh, and so they go through multiple rounds of this draft, okay? But eventually you get to the last person drafted, all right? After you go through the, all the rounds, you get to the last round, and then you get to the last person of the last round, uh, that person actually has a title. In fact, since 1976, this person has been given a name, a title. You know what the, uh, the title of the last person drafted is? Mr. Irrelevant. <laughs> Ain't that terrible? I mean, how would you like to be drafted? I made it to the NFL. You're Mr. Irrelevant, all right? I mean, the, the expectations are pretty low, all right? He's Mr. Irrelevant. He's the last one drafted. Nobody's really expecting much from Mr. Irrelevant, right? However, this last year, the last guy drafted Mr. Irrelevant was a guy named Brock Purdy. He was the Iowa State quarterback. Last guy drafted, Mr. Irrelevant, got drafted, picked up by the 49ers, ended up taking the 49ers to the NFC Championship game. Now he's not irrelevant, right? He's one of the hottest quarterbacks uh, that the NFL's got right now. I mean, went from the bottom to the top. He was overlooked, and yet he was a great, great player. Now, when I saw that, I thought about David, right? He's the last draft pick, right? All these seven sons have been paraded before Samuel. Nope, nope. Nope, nope, no. Don't you have any more sons? And I love what Jesse says. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I think I do have one more son. Like he forgot him or something, you know? Oh, yeah, I, got, I think I got one more. Yeah, he, he's just out in the pasture, man. He's just watching the sheep. Well, bring him in here. And then it says that it gives him a little description of what David looks like. It says he was handsome. Uh, some versions use the word ruddy. Does your version say that? He was ruddy. The word ruddy, the Hebrew word there means red. So some people think that he was redheaded, freckle-faced. That's probably maybe what he looked like. He didn't really look like a king, more like Ed Sharon, not, not a king necessarily. Uh, but, uh, but he was the one. Now, by the way, where was David when, uh, when he was called in front of Samuel? Where, where was he again? Somebody lift up your voice and tell me. He was in the pasture. That's right, in the pasture. Um, by the way, the pasture is just not a, a fast track somewhere, right? If you get put out to pasture, he would say that today. That's not, a, that's not a great place to be. The pasture is boring. The pasture is mundane. The pasture is monotonous. The pasture is insignificant. And yet it was in the pasture that God was shaping David's heart and shaping David's character. 
Let me just say this, that there are seasons in our life when we feel like we're in the pasture. There are seasons in our life when we feel like, you know, we're Mr. Irrelevant in an irrelevant place. It's when you're having to commute an hour to work and an hour back and you get to the office and you get to your cubicle and you bang out your work and you don't know if anybody's ever going to notice if you'll ever be promoted, if you ever get to a place that's of notoriety in your career. Maybe you're in a season right now where you're just taking kids to ball games, taking them to school, doing laundry, uh, you know, fixing meals. And it's, it just seems like a monotonous uh, existence. Nobody really sees it, doesn't really matter. I, I'm pretty insignificant. Maybe it's just you're mowing the lawn and doing the grocery shopping and, and just uh, honeydews. And you know, it's just, there's nothing really profound about my life. I'm not really going anywhere. I'm just kind of lost in the shuffle. I'm Mr. Irrelevant. I'm Mrs. Irrelevant in so many ways. But here's what I want you to know. It's in those seasons of life that God is shaping your character. He's, you say, well, how is that? How could God be shaping my character when I don't feel like I'm doing anything? Well, let me tell you this. There's some things you learn in the pasture you don't learn anywhere else. You learn how to hear from God. Learn to be still enough to hear from God. Do, where do you think most of these Psalms came from? Okay, David's drawing from his time in the pasture that he wrote some of the most beautiful Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Think about that. You learn to hear God's voice. You learn to, uh, you learn to be patient. Here's another one. You learn to endure you learn to be faithful in the small things before you can ever be faithful in the larger things. I tell you what, I remember the first pastorate uh, where I was uh, the lead pastor. Uh, it was a wonderful church, still love the people in that church, but it, the ministry was hard. It was in the inner city. There was just a lot of challenges there. And I can tell you, you know, pastors are human too. You, don't, you probably think we just live here at the church, you know, and, uh, and we don't ever like vir venture out into the population, you know, but we, we actually live normal lives, all right? We're just kind of normal people. And uh, I can remember one time I was just really discouraged. I didn't tell anybody this. I probably told Liz, but that was about it. I, I thought, Lord, surely I can do something else. I mean, I could sell shoes. I could do lawns. I, surely there's something else I could do to make a living because I'm just so discouraged where I'm at. And I can remember the Lord saying, you know what? You didn't sign up for this. I drafted you. This is your assignment. Just gut it up. Just do the work. Just be faithful. Just show up. Just do your job. And you know what I learned? In, those, in that difficult season of my life, I remember learning some things about how to disciple people and how to lead people and how to plant churches. All the things that we're doing now that God is blessing all over the world, guess where I learned it? I learned it in that small church that I thought was irrelevant. Here's what I want you to know. If you're in a season right now where you just feel like, yeah, I'm just kind of in this grind. I don't know if I'm ever gonna move up. I don't know if what's gonna happen to me. I just feel so irrelevant in my life. I want you to hear me, hear me. Just embrace the moment. Embrace the grind of it. Embrace the monotony of it. Be faithful unto the Lord. Lean into it. Let God speak to you. Let God train you. Let God prepare you to trust him and to wait on him and to persevere and endure. Let, let him do his work in you because he's preparing you for greater things. That's what he was doing with David. He was preparing him for something greater while he was in the pasture. God sees right where you are and God's preparing you right where you are 
for greater things. So God sees your pain. God sees your heart. God sees where you are. But that kind of leads us to the last thing, that God sees what's ahead. Look at verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. It says that Samuel anointed David. The word anointed there is mashech, mashech. It means literally to to cover. It it means to smear. You know, when when they anointed a king, they didn't just like put a little droplet, you know, on their forehead. They would pour the oil on their head and it would, you know, drip off their beard and, and puddle on the floor. I mean, it was a, a smearing, a covering, and it was an idea that, that they're going to anoint a king or they anoint a high priest, and this was setting them apart for this greater work of service. Now, by the way, this was the first of three anointings of David. Uh, the other two would be public anointings as he would move into significant roles of leadership, ultimately to be the king. But this first one was a private anointing. Only his family was with him. And this one had a spiritual significance because it says at that moment, the spirit of God came powerfully on David from that day forward. Now, this is really the secret to David's success. As we go on next week, we're going to talk about David and Goliath. All right. Uh, You know that story. But as we go on, we're going to start to see some successes in David's life. But don't, don't misunderstand. It wasn't that David was just so athletic or David was just so awesome or so courageous. He was so good, so talented that he really rose up through the ranks and became great because of who he was. No. The reason why God used him in those powerful ways is because he was filled with the Spirit of God. That he was surrendered to God. And that God filled him and used him for a greater purpose. And that's always the way it is. I mean, I don't care what story you're looking at. In the Old Testament, you see this over and over and over again. God uses flawed men filled with the Spirit to do his work in the world. You think about uh, uh, God using Gideon. I mean, Gideon's 300, way over, overwhelmed, but God used him because he was filled with the Spirit. Think about Samson standing his ground and defeating the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. How is that possible? Because the Spirit of God was on him. Think about Abraham walking in faith because the Spirit of God was on him. Think about Daniel uh, interpreting dreams in Babylon because the Spirit of God was on him. Think about Mordecai standing faithfully at the gate because the Spirit of God was on him. Now, the reason why that's important is because God uses flawed people filled with the Spirit to do his work, and that includes you. That's what God wants for your life. God wants to take you as flawed as you are. He sees your heart. He wants to clean your heart and fill you with his Spirit so he can use you for his purpose. That's why you exist. That's why you're here. And that's what brings glory to God. So as it was with David, so it is with us. But there's more to the story here. You say, okay, we end the story. No, 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 not so fast. Not so fast. There's more to the story here. God saw David's future, what he's going to do with him, but God saw past David. 
Think about skipping a rock, right? When you skip a rock, it hits the surface of the water, but then it shoots forward. Uh, God saw David, it skipped, but then also he saw beyond David to someone greater than David. David was anointed, but he saw another anointing one, another anointed one that would come. Mashech means anointing. Mashech is where we get the word Messiah. The Greek word Christ means anointed one. That God was looking past David to another anointed one, to another Messiah, to another Christ that would come. Just as David was of the tribe of Judah, so another one would come greater than David from the tribe of Judah. Though David was a king, another king would come, an eternal king. Uh, Just as David was born in Bethlehem, a thousand years later, another would be born in Bethlehem, uh, greater than David. David is, and and all the way through scripture, he is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He is a foreshadowing. So when we see David in these great victories, you're seeing a foreshadowing of what Christ will do and how Christ is and and our hope and our foundation in Jesus Christ. And, And the reason why that's important is because it's only when we're in Christ that God can see us for who he wants us to be. When a person is in Christ, then God sees our pain, but he brings us to healing. When a person is in Christ, God sees our heart as soiled and sinful as it is, and he brings us to purity and forgiveness. When when a person is in Christ, God sees where we are, but God is now working at us to use us for greater purpose. When, when When a person is in Christ, God sees not only what he will do in your life, but what the life to come will be like in heaven. You see, you're seen because of Christ. And when God looks at you through the life of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he sees you're forgiven, a child of God, redeemed, and useful for him.